Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. The early solar system is a rough and tumble place and we can learn a lot by studying it. Now, the formation of planets is fascinating, and we can study it by looking at the history of the moon, what its craters tell us, and how some massive craters or eruptions even throw stuff to Earth from, say, Mars. And by studying these different rocks and compositions, we can learn a lot about how planets were formed in our own solar system. So the early solar system is a pretty violent and tumultuous place. The early solar system around 4.4 billion years ago was an amalgamation of obviously the stellar nebula which formed our boasted star and the planets around that star, the sun. And also once that formation happened and things started to aggregate together, we then ended up with a period of, well, things just running and crashing into each other. Now, this period lasts from around 4.4 billion years to around 3.8 billion years ago, and in that time, there was an immense number of collisions. These collisions and amalgamations lead to the rocky planets we know forming, and were shaped by the gas giants like Jupiter and Saturn moving in and out of the solar system into their current homes in their outer reaches. Now, this caused all kinds of bombardments and amalgamations, and an easy way to get a picture for that is to actually look at the surface of the moon. And that's because the moon's surface is an incredible visual reminder of the bombardments that have happened to it. Because there's no atmosphere and it's not very geologically active, the surface of the moon isn't really turned over very much at all, which means we can see some incredibly old impact craters. This is what makes the moon look so fascinating. But the thing is, if you want to measure how old these craters are and exactly what makes them up and what sequence they were made, well, at some point, newer bombardments would have occurred pretty much on the spot of an old bombardment. So it kind of wipes out or cleans the slate or at least interferes with the crater that was there before. So just trying to study the craters by looking at them is good, but probably not sufficient to get a really good idea about exactly what happened in the early Earth and our neighbour, the Moon. Some researchers like Yahweh Huang and Jason Soderblom published in the journal Nature Geosciences along with Mitten, Hirabayashi and Melosh, a new technique which uses measurements taken by NASA's Gravity Recovery and Interior Laboratory, or GRAIL, and work in the MIT research labs to try and underlay and map the surface of actually of the moon itself and in particular look at not only its surface gravity, which is the purpose of the GRAIL mission, but also get an idea about its porosity. And try and use this porosity to figure out exactly how all of these impact craters have formed on the moon's surface and how these have changed over time. Now, a lot of this research has to do with the concept of porosity. And you might know the kind of volcanic rock, pumice, and this you could think of as a very light rock. And one of the reasons why it's so light, I don't know if you ever held it in your hand, it's, it's full of holes and there's lots of gaps in it. And that's because the way it was formed with rapidly cooled volcanic rock, it sort of ends up with these pockets inside it. Now, any rock that is classified as porous is basically trying to measure or understand how much space there are between individual grains. 
Now, something like granite or marble, it's so tightly packed that there's almost no space between the grains. They're right up against each other. And if there's any gaps at all, any porosity of this void space, well, it's probably in long, slender, thin cracks between these grains. Otherwise, they're all smooshed and compressed up against it so tightly, part of the nature and the formation of granite. Now, on the other end of the scale is pumice with heaps of void space, which don't exactly line up. So all the minerals and grains inside the pumice don't line up well with each other, end up with these holes and pockets. Now, what these researchers are investigating is the porosity of the rocks on the moon. And what they've found is that, well, at least in that early bombardment period, the moon's porosity was really, really quite high. Not as much as pumice, but about a third of it. So still, geologically speaking, very high. Now, over time, scientists assumed that just constantly getting bombarded with impact would, of course, mean that the porosity would build up over time. But what they saw is that nearly all of all of the moon's porosity formed really quickly, really rapidly, with massive impacts very early on in the Earth's history. And then the continued impacts by smaller ones, smaller craters and smaller impacts later on, what that actually did was compact and compress the surface and get rid of some of that porosity. These actually squeezed and compacted out some of the moon's existing cracks and faults in the rocks on the surface. And the way the researchers investigated this topic was by using some detailed modeling based around measurements taken of the moon itself using the NASA's GRAIL mission. Now, if you look at the moon's surface as it is now, it's not a capture of every bombardment of the moon's experience, but actually a fair amount of them. But how many the bombardments the moon's actually had is not immediately obvious, nor easy to tell visually just by looking at the craters, because they could overlap and, and wipe out each other. So by looking at the surface and the density, or the porosity, sorry, of the moon's surface across its lifetime actually gives probably a more realistic measurement of the number of impacts, because, well, that doesn't change so much with the overlapping effect. That is if you have a crater and you have an impact, it shouldn't impact the actual porosity underneath. So using this technique, you can get an idea of just about how many impacts the moon has had. And you can also track it over time. That's where NASA's GRAIL mission comes in. It used some two spacecrafts to precisely map the surface gravity all the way across the moon. And by using these gravity maps, you can make a detailed map of the density of the moon's underlying crust. Okay, so from that, you can look at both the current day porosity through the lunar crust, and you can see which regions are newer and older as well, part of the detail from this mapping process. So the youngest craters, what they found, the ones with the youngest craters that occurred most, impacts occurred most recently, they're some of the most highly porous areas. And in the older regions, they're actually less porous. So to investigate this concept, they simulated the location of the 77 of the largest craters on the moon's surface, paired that with the data from the GRAIL mission and the measurements of the current day crater's porosity. Now, this simulation was based around the moon, what we know about basins and how big and how kind of rock must have impacted them to create that kind of large crater that we can see. And these are all things that we can get pretty good measurements of. So the model has some good starting point. And by using the newest craters as kind of like a baseline measurement of the porosity of the moon, then they could compare them to the older craters and figure out, okay, well, how much has the porosity increased? Because that means more overlapping impacts and impacts and impacts must have landed and crushed and compacted the rock on that region, thus decreasing the porosity. And using this sort of 
um, guiding point for their model, they could come up with a number of bombardments that had probably happened on the moon. And what they saw is around 4.3 billion years ago, the crust was pretty porous, around 20%. You know, pumice is around 60 to 80%, but 20% is still pretty porous. And then over time, close to 3.8 billion years ago, the crust became even less porous. So as all of those impacts rained down and compacting that rock, squeezing out all that void space and dropping it to around 10%. Still not granite, but actually much less porous than it was before, halved in fact. And from this, the scientists can estimate that the moon probably experienced about double the number of small impacts to get that kind of drop in porosity that they can see than you can actually see on the surface today. And this is good because it actually gives scientists maybe not an exact number, but an easy way to put bounding points on the model of just how many times has the moon been impacted. So by looking at the porosity, researchers can find from the newest craters and track back to the old ones and look at the drop or change in the porosity of the moon's surface over time. From that, they can figure out, well, how many impacts would you have needed to get from one point to the other, and thus determine a, a, a number and type of impact that would have been required. And so now they can put a limit on exactly how many impacts that they would have seen in a given window in the moon's formation. This is pretty amazing because you can see just how much a small impact crater can teach us about what happened on the moon billions of years ago. Some great research published in Nature Geosciences from MIT with research collaboration with NASA, lead author Yahai Huang, along with Soda Bloom, Minton, Hirabayashi and Milosh. ways we can learn about the geology of a planet is of course studying spectral emissions or maybe studying the gravitational impacts of them like we talked about on the moon or perhaps we're lucky enough to send a machine or a robot there to take samples that's great but we've got to get the samples either analyzed on the surface or sent back to earth to analyze and we have done that actually from time to time in some pretty remarkable missions not just the crude ones that have returned to earth carrying the rocks we've actually had landers that have landed on asteroids and jetted them back to Earth, which is pretty cool. But if you don't do that, how do you study the rock from another planet? Take, say, something from Mars. Now, the thing is, there are actually plenty of meteorites that have fallen to Earth that actually have come from Mars. Now, most of the time, these comes from surface rocks that have been exposed to Mars's atmosphere. And this is a pretty amazing thing because imagine this, a rock from the surface of Mars makes its way all the way to Earth. Pretty phenomenal to think about the geological processes that have had to have curved, like a mega colossal eruption, to actually get some rock to make that journey. And all the rocks that probably didn't quite make that. Some large impacts or mega eruptions are pretty much the only way that that could have happened. Now, what is even more fascinating about a particular meteorite found in France in 1815, the Chassinet meteorite, which fell to Earth in northeastern France in 1815, was amazingly unusual. Because when you do a geological study of it, it doesn't quite match what you see on the surface of Mars. It's closer, in fact, to what we suspect is something from the interior of Mars. 
Now, that could really only be caused by a really, really big impact crater flying off extra material or a really big eruption. And that's what researchers from UC Davis, along with ETH, including Sandrine Perron and Shijoy Mukabadai, have been studying in detail and published in the journal Science. Now, when you study an old meteorite like this, you can learn a lot, not just about the rock or about the planet it's come from, but you can actually look at some pretty interesting things it tells you. When you look at certain chemical compositions, particular elements and isotopes found in it can tell you a lot about, well, what made up, say, the atmosphere, especially if you can find any ratios of isotopes of noble gases, in particular a gas like, say, krypton. No, not the material from Superman's planet, actually just the noble gas. Now to talk about why noble gases and atmospheres found in a meteorite can tell us something exciting, we have to talk a little bit about what was happening at the very early points in our solar system. Now in the first parts of the formation of our solar system, all the different rocky planets were formed along with the gas giants and this big amalgamation process we spoke about earlier. But the thing is, Mars is a bit special because as far as we can tell, it formed pretty quickly, relatively speaking, around 4 million years after the birth of the Sun and the solar system, while the Earth itself took a lot longer, 50 to 100 million years to form. Now, Earth's larger, so I guess in a way that makes sense, but this difference in age is particularly interesting because the solar system at that 4 million year point is very different to what we see here today, obviously, but even to what Earth had 50 to 100 million years ago. So what exactly was floating around there? Well, we have to talk a little bit about what was in this solar nebula. It's the meter of solar and meteorotic volatiles, all these things that will get smooshed and crushed and end up onto this ball of molten rock. And there must have been some kind of atmosphere around this planet too, this collection of gas being pulled down by the density of this amassing rock. So just as rocky matter is aggregated by this planet, gassy matter is as well. And a lot of that's being swept up from this solar nebula. Now, we don't see the solar nebula today because most of it's been dissipated by solar radiation or absorbed by planets. But before that happened in the early points of Mars's history, that really early time in the solar system, there should have still been a lot there. Now, this is pretty amazing because Mars would have been present for this dissipation or this blowing off of this big nebula that the sun was birthed in. It was there to witness its departure, its melting away. But when the researchers studied some samples from this particular meteorite, looking at the minute quality quantities of krypton isotopes in the sample in the labs, they found something pretty amazing. And that is, well, it seems that it gives us a clue to what exactly happened to the dissipation of this nebula and how some of it may have been trapped or left behind on the surface of Mars in some way or the other. So when we look at the formation of a planet, we have this big period where they're sucking up and accrediting all this matter, all this rocky stuff, and sometimes also these gases from the solar nebula around the birth of a star. That's how the planets are formed. But because the planet is mostly a molten ball of rock and magma at this point, well, anything that's collected normally dissolve into the magma ocean and then later on are actually degassed back out 
into the atmosphere. So if you suck up some gas along the way, it's probably melted into that magma, and then later when it's cooled down a bit, well, then you degas it back out. Now, you can also get sometimes that gas or material being rained down via chrondonic meteorites crashing to the young planet, delivering more of these volatile materials back into the Earth's surface. So scientists really expected that volatile elements in the interior of a planet, well, actually, they should be representing the composition of the solar nebula, that mix of solar and meteorologic volatiles. And when you look at the atmosphere, well, it can't be from the early period because it's the atmosphere, it's recent, it's the stuff that's left on the topmost layer, literally. These must mostly then come from meteorites that have rained down on it much, much later, after that big molten rock has cooled down and after everything sort of calmed out and, well, most of that gas is either dissipated or being absorbed into a rock then rained down on a planet. So these two sources of volatile gases and materials, solar versus chrondritic, can be distinguished basically by studying the ratios of isotopes found in noble gases, particularly looking at krypton. And so when they made careful measurements of the isotopes found in krypton, they could see that the samples in this meteorite actually lined up with what they would expect from chronitic meteorites, not what they would have found in the solar nebula. But yet they know this meteorite came from the core of Mars. So how did you get these meteorite-like results from actually something that we know it was ejected from the surface of Mars? That means that meteorites were delivering volatile elements to Mars much, much earlier than we previously thought. So since the Martian interior composition of Krypton is nearly purely chronitic, it means that the atmosphere's composition is mostly solar. It's really unusual for at least what we thought how planets were formed and absorbed all these gases. So it means that Mars's atmosphere cannot have formed purely from mass and material outgassing from the mantle because that would have given it a composition that would have matched these rocky meteorites that they found. So it must have acquired an atmosphere from the solar nebula after the magma ocean cooled. Otherwise, it would have been basically a mixing between the two gas types, and you would have ended up with something that looked pretty meteorite-like gas. So this means that Mars's growth and formation of its atmosphere and what's left of it today was completed before that solar nebula was really dissipated by radiation from the sun. Now, of course, that radiation of the sun blew away the nebula, but it also did eventually blow away Mars's own atmosphere. So how do we still see some atmospheric krypton left on Mars? Well, it could have possibly been preserved or trapped underground in polar or ice caps. But all of this stuff assumes that Mars would have had to rapidly cool after its immediate formation. So this is really fascinating. Mars itself, we know it formed really quickly compared to Earth, but that formation itself is also really strange. And it actually had an atmosphere way earlier than we anticipated with also a really interesting origin. And we can learn all of this by just simply studying rocks that have rained down on Earth from Mars and inside the core. So we may not have solved the mystery of how Mars's atmosphere formed and thus is comprised of, but we do know a bit more about its origins and what we can see in it, and what it can teach us about the really early and strangely volatile four or five million years of the solar system's history. Some interesting research published in the journal Science by literary author Sandrine Perron and Sujoy Makabadei. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. From studying the density of rocks on the moon to analysing meteorites that have landed on Earth from Mars and what they can tell us about the formation of planets in our solar system. 
Our ending theme was composed by Audionatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.